Just coming in ahead with a bit of a trigger warning. In this episode, somebody tries to commit suicide. You'll see it coming, but I don't blame you if you decide not to listen. Anyway, onto the actual show. Hello, and welcome to the sixth episode of The World Cycle, Brittle Alicia. Thank you to Chloe for voicing Alicia on short notice. This episode contains the edited text of Brittle Elysia, posted on the 19th of June 2021 on my blog, worldcyclepodcast.wordpress.com. Enjoy. Here is a story I have been aching to tell, the story of Alicia, of the Vulture, if you've never heard her name, a story of pain and hunger and rejection, the story of a monster, or so I've been told. What makes her a monster, though, more than anyone else whose story I've told so far, I couldn't say for sure. Alicia was born in a small village on the edges of what would come to be called the Sarinan Desert, in the savannas of early Sarina. The village was built along the bank of the Tanarand River, though the inhabitants called it the Hurtiv River at the time. Elysia was an unusually big baby, and there was something wrong with her from the moment she was born. Her spine was wrong, that was the first thing. Her arms were too long, that was the second thing. Her shin broke in two places, and one of her ribs broke from the pressure of being born. It was sheer luck that the rib didn't penetrate any organs, It was sheer luck that when her jaw broke not a day later, she could still be fed. Elysia grew up tall and broad, hunched and twisted. She grew up pained and rejected. And she wasn't even a prodigy. I'm sure, to digress a little, that we've all heard stories of disabled people who were prodigious with magic, or some talent that turned out to be useful. The people in the village called her monstrous, called her a freak. She made it to 13 years old in the relative safety of her village, in the relative safety of her mother's home. In the same way that we might generalize Sarinans now, the people of her village were hard. They did not want the liability that was Elysia, and, of course, there was no Sarinan state as there is now to take her in when her mother died. A wave of typhoid spread through the village one particularly dry summer, killing almost 60 of the 140-odd residents. The river by the village had slowed too much to be safely used for waste disposal, but either the people of the town hadn't known, or they hadn't realized that the water was too slow. Elysia contracted the disease, though it was not so severe for her. But that didn't matter, did it? The monster had brought the disease to the village, surely. The freak had to be to blame, and so with knives and spears the people chased Elysia out of the village. Elysia fared better alone in the desert than anyone would have expected of her. She could walk, if slowly, and as long as she was careful and methodical, she could remove all the spines from edible cactus. Elysia was used to being careful and methodical. 
she could find edible seeds and plants and water. Which is not to say that she couldn't get hurt harvesting plants. She pulled her arms out of her shoulders numerous times trying to pick various stalks to soak and eat. It was the animals that were the problem. Elysia could keep clear of most predators, most cats. But she limped, she moved slowly, and even though she was big for her age, she was still a lone Vinan child. Hyenas liked to follow her from time to time. Sometimes she had to run, and it always hurt. Elysia lost count of how many times her shin bone broke, but it was almost the same number as the number of times she had to flee from hyenas. She remembered the few times she had to escape cats, they were usually easier to get away from, and she remembered fondly the times she would sit near lions and they wouldn't mind her, or the number of times she would wrestle a cheetah and it would be friendly and she would break a rib or a finger. She found that there were always vultures nearby. It was early summer again when Alicia spotted the mountain now called Berenith. She didn't know the name back then. She made her way toward it, trudging, limping, panting, and she was chased by hyenas, of course, as she got into the foothills of the mountain. The chase seemed shorter than usual, though her shin had broken again, despite the splints and wraps around her legs. Elysia panted and stumbled, pushed herself between two large stones and found herself in a wide path between massive stone buildings. She had found herself in the outskirts of a Quenon village. An aside, as I have mentioned, Quenon, Vinan, and Yonan have not always lived together. In the desert that came to be Serina, there were Vinan and Quenon, living near each other but separately, and vanishingly few Yonan. Elysia propped herself against a stone house and panted and coughed and tried to ignore the pain in her leg from the broken bone. She had gotten so good throughout her life at ignoring pain. It wouldn't last long this time, she was sure of it. A woman stepped around the side of a house, a woman about ten meters tall, and started when she saw little Elysia standing there, panting and coughing and standing on one leg. Elysia stared at the woman and resolved that she was not going to run. The Quenon woman said something, but Elysia couldn't understand the language. She stared and she panted and she was sure that she was not going to run. She was sure that the Quenon here lived close enough to Vinan that they wouldn't be aggressive. Another quick note, Elysia had it backwards, of course. Vinan have historically been the instigators of violence when it has sprung up between Vinan and Quenon, or Vinan and Yonan. There's a little more nuance to it than that, but that's the broad strokes. The Quenon held up her hands in the same way that Elysia would hold up her hands to a cat that she had stumbled upon. The woman took a small step for a ten-meter-tall woman, and crouched in the way you might crouch to look at a baby. The woman spoke again, slower this time. I don't know your language, Elysia said. Her voice was hoarse, her words breathy with panting. She had not lost her language in the last year, of course. She talked quite a lot. To herself, to the cats, to the vultures, to the plants. The woman's eyes widened and she nodded, stood up straight and waved at Elysia to follow her. But Elysia shook her head. I'm not going that way. The woman turned back and Elysia pointed up the mountain. The woman smiled, nodded, pointed essentially the opposite direction to the way she'd been about to go. Elysia nodded. Thank you. She hobbled her way down the path, taking the direction the woman had pointed. She glanced back occasionally to see the woman watching her go, but it didn't take long to reach the edge of town. A path, presumably walked often by the Quenon there, 
led toward the mountain and around the roots and foothills. Elysia followed that path, panting and coughing and hobbling along without using her broken leg more than she had to. Another Quenin pastor, headed back to the town, stopped when he saw Elysia, gave a polite wave, and continued on his way. Elysia waved back and flinched when the man's foot landed only a couple of meters from her. She was tall, for a Vinan, but she only barely reached the man's knee. Around the bend in the mountain was a pile of rubbish, mostly debris and building rubbish. No food waste, no useful containers. Elysia was starting to get hungry, starting to get thirsty, but she couldn't carry much, she couldn't make much, and when she tried to carry food it always hurt more than seemed worthwhile. With a lurch and a crack, Elysia pulled a stick out of the pile. It was about two meters tall, a bit taller than her, and a little wider than was comfortable for a hiking stick, and the effort had pulled her shoulder out again. With a wince and a sigh, Elysia pushed her arm back into the socket and, walking stick in hand, made slightly better time around the mountain. Here, the path was gone, the walk was rocky and loose, and Elysia slipped often, felt bones in her foot crack, kept on walking. She stopped under an overhang of stone as night was starting to fall, and she curled up and she cried. Everything hurt. I don't know that that point has been made clear enough. Elysia was always, always in a great deal of pain. That was the nature of her body, the nature of her bones. It was the barest fact of her existence, but, but it still hurt. In the morning, she pushed herself to her feet and she continued on her hobbling, limping way up the mountain. She wouldn't have said why she went up the mountain. She might have said that she felt compelled and in a way that was true. Elysia was strong, her muscles were strong and her will was strong, but she was tired and she hurt. Her leg ached against her broken shin, her spine ached against her hunched back, her fingers ached against her stretched tendons, her mind ached against her nature. It was almost night when Elysia finally reached the top of the mountain. She marveled at the view over the savannah and she sat on the edge of the cliff and panted and coughed and rubbed her shoulder. Her mouth was dry and her stomach rumbled. She had found almost nothing on the way up the mountain but for some seeds that stuck in her teeth. Still, it was a wondrous view. Elysia did not often have the chance to appreciate the sunset. She did not often have the chance to appreciate the sky or the ground around her. She was busy. Streaks of orange and purple spread out from the horizon, coloring the thin clouds and the empty sky. Wind swept in waves through the savannah grasses and great flowing masses of animals swept across the land. A vulture landed with a thud not so far away from her and stared. Elysia smiled at the vulture. Not yet, not yet. She glanced down the cliff and heaved a great sigh. And besides, you'd be better off waiting down there. Another vulture landed with a rattle and a thud. The three of them stared out at the sunset in companionable silence. When finally the sun gave way to empty, starry sky, Elysia creakingly got up from her seat. She took a deep breath and dropped her hiking pole down the cliff to watch it shatter on the stones far below. Elysia took a deep breath, closed her eyes, and stepped over the cliff's edge. She felt her heart sink as she fell. She felt relief. She felt a strange surge of magic through her body, and she hit the ground with a crunch, with a slap, with a thud. It was like lightning shooting through her body. It was like bellows being pressed flat. It was like a body being dropped from a cliff. Blood leaked from her mouth and nose and ears. 
Her fragile bones had broken through her skin. Her heart stuttered and would not stop. Her breath rattled in her chest, hissed out her pierced lungs, but still she drew breath. Still her heart beat and still she drew breath. She could not stop. The cliff was so high, the rock so solid, and yet, and yet her heart did not fail to beat in her shattered chest, and yet her breath flowed through her body. It hurt. The vultures landed nearby, rattling and screeching. They hobbled over to Alicia, and if she had been able to speak, well, she couldn't be sure what she would have said. Would she have begged the vultures to kill her? Would she have tried to shoo them away for fear of death? More vultures landed, more and more and more. Their bald heads bent over Alicia as they rattled and shrieked. The noise was near deafening, near comforting. Something was coming. Something was being agreed on. With a lot of thumping, rattling, and screeching, the vultures took off, choking the air with dust, choking Alicia with dust. Alicia didn't mind, though. There was something afoot, some plan being put into motion. She didn't mind the extra pain of coughing. Alicia had no sense of time until the moon rose over the mountain to glare down at her. In the bright, pale light, she could see no more than she had in the darkness, only the stones and her dried blood. Her mouth was dry and sandy, her breath no longer whistled in her chest, her blood had stopped flowing from her broken body, and still she could feel those brittle bones piercing her skin. Alicia waited patiently. She waited patiently for the vultures to return, or she waited patiently to dry to a husk. Either would be fine, she thought. A vulture landed by her head, spraying more dirt into her mouth. Then it poked its beak into Alicia's mouth and regurgitated something absolutely awful tasting. Alicia coughed, and some of her gifted food launched from her mouth, and her muscles tensed and her broken bones shifted within her broken flesh. It hurt to swallow, and still Alicia swallowed the gift of food and a mouthful of dirt. She was not so rude as to refuse a gift. It tasted horrendous, and her body wanted it gone. Her stomach heaved, her breath caught in her throat. That first time, it hurt. But vultures came and went throughout the day, feeding Alicia little bit after little bit of disgusting regurgitated meat. And as they fed her, Alicia felt better. Each time, it hurt less than the last. I think that there is a fine line between not clear enough and too explicit. Here I will digress to mention something that I hope I have successfully hinted at thus far. Elysia was strong, or she was robust. It's difficult to find the right way to put it. She had a lot of magic, perhaps, is the simplest. All her life, Elysia had been recovering from constant injuries as her bones broke and her joints dislocated. And she recovered ever more quickly, as the magic within her worked constantly to repair the damage. You may recall I mentioned that she contracted typhoid and no one noticed. That was because of this magic I'm talking about. I bring this up because, as I'm sure some of you know, vultures are essentially venomous, which is to say that they are full of disease and their digestive juices are much stronger acid than most creatures. They are dangerous, and so is anything that they have eaten or drunk from. Ulysses survived her time at the bottom of that cliff. She recovered much quicker and much more competently than I think most people could have. All her bones were basically back in the right places, all her flesh was where it should be, and none of her organs had melted from weeks or months of being fed from the mouths of vultures. Elysia returned to wandering the savannah, limping and hunched. 
Perhaps she followed that wake of vultures, or perhaps they followed her. But she became inseparable from them, and she became much more confident. Elysia did not flee from hyenas anymore. She spat on the ground before them, and dozens of vultures landed around her, and she stared. And the hyenas let her be, and she was not so scared of the cats as she had once been, but neither was she so friendly, neither were the cats so accepting of her presence. Still, she spent much of her time around the cats, of course, watching them hunt and waiting for them to leave food behind for her and her new family. I don't know if you've ever watched vultures descend on a corpse, but it's something of a kerfuffle, something of a screeching, thrashing struggle. Elysia still broke bones and dislocated her shoulders as she struggled with the vultures to get at the food. She still broke bones trying to feed herself. But she was so big, as sturdy as she was brittle, She never struggled to get food. She never struggled to stare down the hyenas that came to pace and watch and try to scare the vultures. Ever more vultures followed Elysia, ever more landed around her when she stared down hyenas and cats, ever more stared and screeched with her as she shooed hyenas and then lions and tigers away from their meals. People talked about her. People saw her. People had seen Elysia sometimes. They might tell their village of some hunched freak alone in the savannah. Now they would tell of a vulture the size of a vinen. Sometimes she was the size of a yonin. Occasionally, she was the size of a quenin. They called her vulture, or queen of the vultures, or mother of vultures, sometimes king of the vultures, if they dared not get close enough to check. And as they talked of her, ever more vultures came to join her wake. Her bones healed faster when they broke. Her spit fouled the water where she drank. Elysia, who did like to be called the Vulture, was perhaps 16 years old, perhaps 17, the first time she killed a person. In this case, she killed a Vinan man who had been sent out by his village to fight the Vulture, to keep her away from the children and the water. The Vulture had never gone to a town, no member of her wake had ever harmed a Vinan or Yonan or Quenin. But the story spread, of course, and as they spread, they mutated. So one day, the village a bare speck in the distance, Elysia was faced by a man with a spear. He shouted that she would come no closer, that she would leave. And Elysia waved her arms and the vultures landed behind her and around her. She looked at the man and she said, I have no designs on you or yours. But he didn't believe her, she supposed. He charged at her with a spear and she raised her hand to protect herself as if that would help. The blade of the spear slashed open her hand and stabbed through her left lung. She slumped forward, and she reached out a hand, and she grabbed the man by the throat. Elysia's fingers crackled as she squeezed the man's throat. Her breath whistled and her heart stuttered as the spear pushed further through her chest. Her ribs grated against each other, shards of bone worked into her blood. Still, Elysia squeezed. As the man gasped and wheezed as he raised his hands to claw at her as his face turned red and then purple, Elysia squeezed until the man stopped moving. She squeezed until she felt the life go out of him. Only then did Elysia drop the body. Only when it was empty and unmoving. She had felt the life go out from him. She had felt it with her power. She had felt whatever mechanism drove a body stop. Elysia looked inward, to her shattered ribs and torn lung and slashed heart. She looked inward to the spear that pierced her. With her hands and with her power, she gripped it. When Elysia pulled the spear from her body, she did not bleed. Her flesh closed behind the blade, her bones shifted under her flesh. Those shards wriggled their way back from her blood. In a moment, Elysia was whole, and that man was dead. 
Does that make her a monster, then? Is that the reason? She killed a man in self-defense. She would have died had she not done it. Is that the problem, do we think? Is the problem that she survived as long as she did, but... But I'm getting ahead of myself, I think. Elysia's story does not end there, of course. The encounter gave Elysia ideas, gave her notions. We will look at some of those notions in two weeks when I return. And we will have more opportunities to investigate her supposed monstrousness. Until we meet again. Thanks for listening to this episode of the World Cycle Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find my writing on worldcyclepodcast.wordpress.com, where I post a short story every day. If you prefer, you can follow me on Tumblr at worldcycle.tumblr.com, which I don't use very much. If you're real weird, you can also follow me on Twitter at the World Cycle. Also, new thing, and I won't bring this up too often, I've started appearing on Green Left Radio from time to time, 7 to 8.30 a.m. in Melbourne at uh, 8.55 a.m., I think. I don't know how radios work. All these links, as well as the link to the full text of the episode, can be found in the description. Goodbye. It has been nice speaking with you. (laughs) 